This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come warm yourself by the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Carlos Kajina is my technical producer, and Ryan White is my live stream producer, and we are live streaming on YouTube and Rumble. The YouTube channel is Strange Planet. The Rumble channel is Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. Now, I say live streaming. However, uh, this program is pre-recorded uh, because I'm hosting Coast to Coast tonight, so I can't be two places at the same time. Uh, that means I won't be able to take uh, questions from the live chat, but back next week with live programming. Coming up in the second hour, Victor Vigiani, Executive Director of Zeland Communications, will be here with a look back at 2021 and an incredibly eventful year for UFO ET disclosure. A year that was really catapulted into history by the 2017 New York Times article by Ralph Blumenthal, Leslie Kane, and Helena Cooper, revealing the ATIP investigation with the Pentagon. And it took about four years for this revelation to seep into the media and the political entities like the U.S. Senate. And to recognize what uh, Harry Reid, former U.S. Majority Leader in the U.S. Senate, started with the $22 million appropriation for the uh, establishment of the Advanced Aerial Threat Identification Program. And, of course, we also had the Senate Intelligence Committee voting to require U.S. intelligence agencies and the Defense Department to compile a detailed public analysis of all data collected on UAPs, including intrusions, recorded and reported by Navy pilots in recent years. And then uh, in June of uh, last year, we had the preliminary assessment of UAP by the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, which was a big disappointment because it was only about six pages, but still uh, a significant acknowledgement. And then in October, we had retired United States Air Force Officer Robert Salas organizing an event at the National Press Club in Washington titled UAP and Nuclear Weapons Witness Testimonies, which highlighted a series of incidents where it's claimed that UFOs were seen too close to nuclear bases and in some cases shutting down weapons. So again, Victor Vigiani, on a look back at 2021 and some of the pivotal moments in UFO ET disclosure. This hour, astrologer William Stickovers will discuss how planetary alignments affect finance, geopolitics, 
populist movements and civil unrest in the coming year, William utilizes a broad scope of political, economic, psychological, spiritual, and metaphysical knowledge to systematically explore possibilities about the future and how they can emerge from the present by weaving current secular trends, geopolitical factors, and mundane astrological portents. He's a counseling astrologer since 1988, mostly in New York and now in San Francisco. He's well-versed in psychological, horary, electional, medieval, and Renaissance branches of astrology. He's certified in astrocardiography, and he worked with Elfie Lavoie of the Astrological Institute of Research. He's lectured in the National Council for Geocosmic Research, the American Federation of Astrologers, the Astrological Society of Connecticut, the San Francisco Astrological Society, and in Germany, Romania, and Japan, in addition to being one of five astrologers recommended by Michael Luton's Financial Astrology page. William has been invited by Kepler College, We the People, and the STARS Online Astrology event and the Meta Center in New York City to participate on panel discussions on the 2016 U.S. presidential election, the political and economic future of the U.S. and the Mayan Fifth Age, respectively. William. Welcome aboard. How are you? Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. Really great to be on the show today. Likewise. Can we begin with just a really fundamental, basic crash course in astrology and planetary alignment? Well, basically what we're looking at here is the alignment of the planets in regards to how it affects human behavior, also in terms of how it affects systems. Uh, worldwide, at the geopolitical level, financial level, uh, the body politic of a nation, uh, the sentiment of the publicly traded markets. All of this is uh, manifestations of behavior that are um, driven by archetypal, um, archetypal components that correlate with the movement of the planets. So when Pythagoras, for example, and the ancient Greeks talked about music of the spheres, what did they believe or how did they believe that these celestial bodies can impact human behavior? What's sort of like the underpinning of planetary alignment? That what happens above reflects regards to what is below here on Earth. So uh, that the entire cosmos is permeated with this matrix and that there is uh, correspondence and correlation between uh, developments that happen in the natural world that are can that are reflected in terms of omens, planetary alignments, the movement of stars, etc. That there's they have they found very close correlations in terms of that in terms of. Uh, an individual's temperament at the time of their birth. So uh, this goes beyond the current Newtonian model of um, physics that was so initiated into. We're, we're really talking about um, the concept of, of matter, right? You know, this, this model, this uh, ma- doesn't really apply. Like astrology deals with the matrix or the sort of... Um, the energy shifts, the state of quantum energy shifts that occur at the subtle level, at a deeper level uh, in regards to the construct of, 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 of physics. So it works more 
in alignment with what we see with quantum physics and string theory. And I believe that's what Pythagoras uh, was, was talking about. And this was all part of a mystery school. So astrology was part of like a mystery school that eventually developed into a true medieval science by the time of the high or late medieval era or early Renaissance. So that's what we're seeing that, you know, basically what we're doing today is taking those very concepts that were developed by uh, the Greeks or the Greek mystery school, and then now putting them into uh, data systems and using computers where we can look at, look at large data sets, and then we can correlate uh, particular types of behavior, particular developments in history with uh, all, all different types of astrological correlations. It's not just about uh, planetary alignment, correct? I mean, do you include the moon, the sun? All of those. Right. So we use, we don't just use the planet in a sign or the sun sign. We're looking at declination. We're looking at uh, how out of planetary alignments converge and separate over history and how that correlates with periods of revolutions and wars. So, you know, it's, it's uh, astrology and there's many different schools of astrology. There's, there's, you know, the typical sun sign pop astrology that became very common shortly after the First World War, uh, during the rise of the middle class and consumerism. And we have the more sophisticated uh, levels of, of psychological astrology uh, that was that really came to uh, the, that really came into formation during the time of Carl Jung. Uh, and his investigations into astrology. And then we saw, especially in the 20th century, the emergence of geopolitical or mundane or global astrology. And that has to do uh, primarily what we'll be talking about today, I believe, in terms of what how astrology reflects and can occur with a great, with a good fair degree, I would say a good a high degree of precisional accuracy of where long-term trends are, are happening. Uh, and particularly when it comes to things called, you know, uh, in regards to like paradigm shifts, what we call major shifts in the fundamental um, values and beliefs of a, of, of a civilization. Uh, you also do something called electional or you practice electional. Right. Uh, electional astrology, astrology is, uh, is the, very similar to augury astrology or horary astrology. It's the flip side. So uh, it would be the time of when to initiate a particular action when the planets were in a position that were most fortuitous for uh, a, a fortunate outcome. And the difference between uh, the medieval and Renaissance branches. I would say that the medieval is much more, well, first of all, both those branches limited to the seven planets uh, all the way out to Saturn. They don't include the outer planets that were discovered in the um, 19th and 20th century. So, um, so it doesn't include Uranus, Neptune, Pluto. So that's the main thing. The second thing is that though that type of astrology, in terms of the axioms and postulates, and uh, uh, the is, is very faded. 
right? There's a very fate equality, the option free choice. There's no upward social mobility based on education, uh, based on, um, because the structure of society back then was very, very limited. So, um, but however, uh, that was during the time of the Renaissance in particular and the time of the late, we could say sometime around uh, in, during the 1400s into the early 1600s where astrology hit its apex and uh, it was being utilized by nearly every king and prince and uh, by the Euro elite uh, during that period for decision-making, uh, for profit, for to time, uh, to, uh, for, to elect wars and invasions, etc. It's said that Nancy Reagan, for example, um, made many major decisions, I guess, in the West Wing and helped advise President Ronald Reagan using astrology. And as you say, world leaders consulted their astrologers on uh, invasions and, and so forth. Why then is it in modern times often looked in, in, a, in a condescending or derisive manner by, you know, the so-called men of science? Why are they so quick to dismiss astrology? Because they use a materialistic, mechanistic model of the, of the world in terms of their worldview. It's based on materialism and, you know, that whole entire paradigm that, uh, you know, I mean, it's clear to me. Well, first of all, there's that element of it. The other element of it is that there's the giggle factor or the ridicule factor by the mainstream media. Um, however, what, uh, there's no real journalism on astrology going on anymore because, you know, like I happen to know, I have many different people who work at the highest levels of their particular industry in, in the film industry in Hollywood in in the financial industry in wall street with hedge fund. I have a number of hedge fund clients, but I'm not the only one out there. I have a number of people that I work with who work in the lobbying uh, sector of politics in Washington, uh, you know, campaign, uh, campaign managers and operation chiefs who, right. So there is, a, uh, I would say that uh, it's sort of like cryptocurrency. You know, everyone says, oh, you know, I don't believe in Bitcoin, but everybody's buying it. Everybody, right. It's like every other, right. So uh, for as much as uh, it's looked down upon, uh, there's this massive uh, interest that continues to grow. So I think uh, there's there's two, you know, I think there's the front end story that the media is projecting, that the academ- academia is projecting. And then I think there's the real populist um, undertow that's happening where there is a massive resurgent interest in astrology, especially because of the computerization and development of artificial intelligence, the integration of artificial intelligence systems with the uh, data sets and using the astrological, um, all the different astrological systems and seeing what works, what doesn't work and giving us more consistent results and much finer, uh, much better prediction accuracy. So uh, look, uh, most astrologers I knew, uh, the good ones at least out there uh, are beating the prediction markets uh, about 80% of the time, right? If you can't make accurate predictions more than 70, 80% of the time, you can't, you can't have a viable business model being right. Just over 50%, which most, most, uh, of the best money managers are out there 
at their very best are only only beat the market by 51 to 53%. In fact, 55 is a political landslide, right? But if that's was uh astrologers are outperforming that uh far above 53%. So uh that's another thing. So the problem is there's no real journalism what's really happening in the field. Uh, you see, you know, and the other issue has to do with the fact that who are the biggest, the biggest name astrologers? They're the ones that write uh, the Sunside columns in Vanity Fair, for instance. They're, you know, they're not the heavyweights. They're not the ones that are working with people who are, um, are uh, major forces uh, in their respective fields. And, that's, uh, that's kind of the pop astrology that, that emerged after the First World War, I guess, that you were referencing earlier, that that's just very, uh, very sort of superficial. That's what we see in the right. newspaper, you know, Capricorn, Correct. you know, oh, meet, you'll meet a stranger today. Yes, that's right. Absolutely. So, you know, that that is the but the reality is very different. Uh, most of the astrologers I know who are very uh you know, the ones who are uh, serious astrologers, I would call them, uh, they're booked up, you know, six months to two years in advance. Uh, their fee structure uh, rivals that of a top uh, corporate attorney out there in terms of their hourly rates, um, you know, their accuracy. I can't vouch for everybody's accuracy. I mean, that tends to vary. Um, so there's that side of it. The other problem, too, is that we have a split in astrology uh, the ones who get the most voice are not only just the sun sign astrologers, but the ones who I would f- say that basically pontificate and support the neoliberal complex that we see dominating so much in the mainstream media. So, you know, no matter what Democrat, for instance, runs for office or, you know, Labor Party, they will always be projected to win regardless. And so the most new fiction doesn't um, happen see the media uh, or, or any journalists, you know, <laughs> uh, roasting them, right? So that's, that's the other issue. So uh, generally what we're seeing, you know, the contrarian astrologers are the ones who are working the most, but they get the least press. How do you work? I mean, it's not about just, you know, pouring over charts. You're, you're using are you artificial intelligence, did you say? Yeah, so we use, uh, well, you know, first generation black box, uh, artificially intelligent black box systems where um, that can um, look at over several thousand factors simultaneously in conjunction with planetary alignment. So 7,000 data sets and then see how they correlate to uh, particular particular aspects declination, all these different ways of looking at uh, how how these planetary alignments correlate with what's happening uh, in regards to a certain set of behavior, price movements, uh, key historical developments, uh, military actions, etc. It seems overwhelmingly complex. Um, I mean, how... How does one begin to learn all of this? How do you, how did you become an astrologer? <laughs> yeah, well, that's a, that's a long story, but I started back in the late 1980s and just, you know, was a kid in college who was just really interested in finding a little bit more about, uh, about uh, what he should be doing or what I should be doing with my life and my career. 
And uh, from there, I began a very uh, intense uh, study with a number of astrologers over a 20-year period. And then I started a professional practice a bit earlier should have the early 1990s, and I've been doing that ever since. And then I, you know, uh, what happened is astrology pushed me in the early 1990s to get into computers, PCs, the internet. So I was on the internet before uh, Netscape Navigator was out there. And my goal was to take uh, the developments in computer science and, and, and especially what I was seeing with the internet uh, and to integrate that all into astrology uh, to, you know, <clears throat> to provide, uh, to get much more accuracy uh, in terms of uh, be able to, perf- I knew astrology was capable of doing more than what it was doing, certainly by, um, certainly by the early 1990s, because what was dominating the headlines, I was personally by the late 1980s, early 1990s, when uh, the book was released uh, by Joan Quigley on the regular and how she advised the Reagan administration. So um, I knew astrology was capable of doing a lot more of that, but it was limited because of the fact that we didn't have a uh, global network where we could pull in data or we could exchange concepts and ideas. Uh, This is really crucial uh, and necessary to, you know, and so there's been massive advanced developments, both in financial astrology, geopolitical astrology, psychological astrology. I mean, it's uh, exponential development uh, at a level that we've never seen in the 2000 plus year history of astrology that's happened since uh, the emergence of the internet in the early 1990s. So that's what pushed me to do all of this. And then um, you know, I was a full-time, uh, full-time infrastructure computer engineer in New York City, San Francisco, Silicon Valley. And, you know, I decided, you know, uh, in 2017 to do this full-time, although I did have an international practice prior to that. I was going to Japan. I was going to Europe. I was certainly meeting, um, you know, uh, I was certainly working with Wall Street hedge funds uh, when I lived in New York. So it, it, it was a it was more of a development, an evolutionary development, uh, being fast-tracked and being driven by the technology. Then we'll take a quick time out, come back, and uh, continue to delve into financial and geopolitical astrology, William Stickiverse. And uh, the website is williamstickiverse.com, williamstickiverse, S-T-I-C-K-E-V-E-R-S.com. Back with more of our conversation in a moment. Stay with me. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. We are back with William Stickiverse. Planetary alignment. When you wake up, what are you looking for? To just walk us through, uh, let's say we're, we're looking at geopolitical events. Let's start with geopolitics. What are you looking for in terms of alignment and how that, I know this is very rudimentary, but how that will affect world events? Well, basically what I look at it is a snapshot of the year of the, particularly of the outer planets, that being Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, Pluto, and see what they'll be doing over a 12-month period. Now, 
for the listeners uh, out there, the astrological new year doesn't start on January 1st. It actually starts on March 20th, uh, which is when the sun ingresses into zero Aries. And the astrological new year on the other side of the world for the past 2000 years started on the new moon in the first week of February, which would be the Chinese New Year. So the period of February into late March is a cuspal, liminal period where we see a transition in the energy and the narrative of key developments that are going to define that astrological year. So we're at the tail end of 2021, and now going to be transitioning soon into 2022 in terms of what are going to be the dominant themes that will dominate all the way into the winter of 2023. So I look at all of that and I look at uh, what particular alignments between those planets, uh, between those geocentric, geocentric descending nodes, heliocentric descending and ascending nodes. I look at the Barbell Planetary Cyclic Index. Uh, I look at a number of other things and I see uh, what developments, what are going to be happening. And then I, then I go back and I look historically when those same events and shifts were occurring. Because although uh, history doesn't repeat itself, it often rhymes. So we can see when we know for sure now, we have enough data now to correlate uh, uh, planetary alignments and uh, their intersection with global conflicts with challenging histories in periods, with economic deflationary periods, with uh, periods that correlate with widespread suspicion, pessimism, tension, uh, boom periods, uh, renaissance periods, periods of where we can basically correlate uh, massive socioeconomic stagnation, populism. Um, so there's going to be we look at all of these different things, and then from there we look at. The most important thing after that is to look at the context at the context of what is really going on in the world. That's a big issue, especially if all you're doing is uh, using CNN as your news or BBC, right? Like that's a big problem. That's my big, big qualm with a lot of what's happening now with the astrology is is the fact that they're using this mainstream, um, you know, uh, type of news that is more more with propaganda uh, to pushing a biased narrative con- right correct right and and so that will skew their narrative and their projection so what i do is i have a number of different news services that they're not mainstream uh, uh I, i'm a member of many different think tanks um and and uh, uh special membership groups uh where i get all different types of information data what's happening geopolitically what's happening in terms of technology, science on the cutting edge. And I, I use that, I put that all together and then layer that over the these different major powerful alignments and then make informed, intuitive speculations with the greatest degree of accuracy I can based on what the computer modeling is showing to what is probably going to happen. So we can always talk, we can only talk in regards to probability, not certainty. All right. So let's let's talk about two major potential geopolitical events on the horizon, and that is uh, would be a, a communist China's invasion of Taiwan 
mm-hmm. and uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. What mm-hmm. uh, what does planetary alignment suggest could ha- could occur there? Yeah, well, this is um, yeah, absolutely. Because the reason we could say this is uh, we've seen periods uh, of crises that occur where you know we have um, periods of uh, the potential for high conflict, right? So I'll list off what I'm seeing here. So what we see is when we see the correlation of the geocentric south node of Saturn conjunct Pluto or the geocentric north node of Saturn conjunct Pluto, and you go all the way back in history, and if we just go back, for instance, all into the 1930s, we see the onset of the we see the onset of the Great Depression. We see the uh, national bank holiday that followed when they closed the banks for eight days worldwide and reopened them, took care of your money. This was followed by the confiscation of gold, of the Gold uh, Hoarding Act. Uh, this was followed by the US, devalu- uh, U.S. dollar devaluation being the world reserve currency. Uh, this followed by the National Banking Act. Then we saw the correlation of the COVID-19 pandemic event correlate with that same alignment. And then we see the contested 2020 election, the Biden administration. And, uh, and so, and we've, so we've seen, you know, if we go back even far prior to that, we see the U S civil war, the Taiping revolution, the Taiping revolution. Uh, we've seen the first world war. So we're seeing the same type of alignments that correlated with these global conflicts with these revolutions, uh, with these um, alliances, these uh, these major paradigm shifts. So this alignment in particular deals with uh, high-intensity conflict, systemic financial crisis, foreign policy crisis, revolutions, uh, where we see republics turn into empires. Let me state that again. Constitutional republics, like the Rome, like Rome, right, turn into an empire. Plutocracies, the rise of plutocracies. We see there's a development of crony capitalism, too big to fail, too big to jail, and what is now being termed totalitarian democracy. So a plutocracy that operates uh, on the back end with the front end being a totalitarian democracy that's being the economic system is a crony form of capitalism. And then we also see covert intelligence operations that are driving the narrative or false, false flag events, unprecedented watershed developments in, of historical significance in regards to, um, uh, you know, like full developments uh, on the world stage uh, that correlate with, um, you know, the potential for war conflict. Right now we have what? We had a currency war. We have a technology war. We have a trade war. We have a cold war. And we have the potential for a high-intensity conflict in uh, Eastern Europe with the Ukraine crisis brewing, uh, certainly the situation in Iran and, and the situation where China has made it very clear they are going to acquire Taiwan one way or the other. And they are willing, they're willing to have a conflict uh, with the United States over that uh, because it's when they believe they can win. So these are all things that are coming to a head. And I think the bigger issue is the fact that we're seeing a complete breakdown of the fiat currency, uh, fiat currency fractional reserve banking system. 
Not great news. Not great news, uh, William. Well, we're, we're approaching a break here, but just to sort of address this and then revisit it on the other side of the uh, break here. You mentioned constitutional democracies becoming authoritarian or tyrannical. Um, mm-hmm. We see what's happening in, in Australia right now right. and New Zealand up here in Canada, our, our own prime minister dehumanizing, demonizing the unvaccinated, asking rhetorically, should we tolerate them? And people are wondering what is going on. So are you able to to predict this in advance? Did you see this coming, let's say, even pre-COVID? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. In fact, uh, in, back in January uh, at in New York City, uh, at the New York Open Center, <laughs> I predicted that we would have a black swan event that would shake up the very foundations of our civilization and define the narrative, or at least be the trigger that would then define the narrative moving forward for the remainder of the 21st century. And, you know, I remember <laughs> getting, uh, getting a lot of hostile kickback from that from the audience, uh, although they were, you know, uh, very attentive to wanting to hear what I had to say. So, um, you know, and then I remember, uh, you know, then within, within, Actually, within two weeks, COVID broke out. Now, I didn't know it was going to be a, a global pandemic. I didn't know. I just knew this was going to be big, and I knew it was going to be equivalent in scope, uh, even greater in power and impact than 2008, 911, and 1929 combined, and that this would persist and continue all the way through 2028, 2029. In fact, I said this was the second act of 2008, right? 2008, we had the global financial crisis. Then we had uh, British exit. We had the near collapse of Europe. The Europe, Europe, European Union almost collapsed. The Greek crisis. Uh, then we saw uh, British exit. We saw the rise of Trump. We saw all this populism all throughout the planet. We saw um, the, the Arab Spring in the Middle East where 17 nations went into revolution. So there a lot of things have happened. So that was, that was like um, Act 1. Then we're now transitioning into Act 2. All right. We'll uh, pick up on Act 2. WilliamStickiverse.com. Back with more in a moment. Don't go away. Don't be afraid of the dark. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To talk to Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free 1-866-740-4740. We're back with William Stickiverse, financial and geopolitical astrology. We are seeing the rise of populist movements. I mean, going back to, I suppose, Brexit and then the election of Trump. Now we're seeing on the European continent, the rise of populist movements in France and Italy and Hungary. Where is that going? Where, is, where do you see that heading in the next several years, according to planetary alignments? Yeah. So what we see is a mass formation sarcosis developing as a dystopian tool of population control, which will intensify and accelerate as governments begin to crack down further. So we're going to see a lot more of that. We're going to see the road to fascism, like a global fascism paved with vaccine mandates and techno-corporate state collusion. So we're going to see a much bigger push for that. We're going to see massive applied perception management gaslighting programs that are going to go anabolic this year into next year. Now, this is just in terms of the body politic. This is a 
global thing. This is not just the US or Canadian thing, right? Or European thing. We're also, look, the biggest issue has to do with the fact that combined with this, there's going to not only be applied perception management programs in regards to the politics, but in regards to the economics, we're going to see them change the CPI where they're going to tell us that inflation is actually 5% and the unemployment is 3%. Meanwhile, the inflation, my prediction, it'll be right now it's about 15.8% and it moving to 20%. It will go into hyperinflation in many, many countries outside of the United States, but we'll see Canada hitting 20, 25% inflation, US 20%, and Europe probably around the same. And then you see countries like Turkey, Argentina, you're going to see all these emerging market countries go through hyperinflationary events because the US dollar is collapsing in purchasing power and they're using all sorts of means to cover that up. We're going to see the great resignation, massive labor shortages. It's not just with unskilled workers, with skilled workers. We're going to see all of these global supply chain disruptions. The whole system of governance that has defined our world since 1945 up to 2020 is breaking down rapidly as a new world order, a new system, a new system of money, a new system of governance is emerging at the same time. The collapse of the old Bretton Woods monetary system and moving into what? Digital currency, central planning of the economy. Will I be able to decide if I want to buy a new car or a new dining room table, or will that all be determined based on my social credit score? Is that where we're headed? Yeah, well, that's where what that's where they want to head this. Obviously, the uh, Bitcoin is the greatest threat to Bitcoin is not only the greatest threat to Wall Street, but to governments. Bitcoin replaces government, it replaces the need for bankers, it replaces the need for lawyers. So it's going to, Bitcoin is the catalyst, or I would say Bitcoin is equivalent to what LSD was for the countercultural revolution of the 1960s. That's the best way I could sort of phrase it. That's an excellent analogy. Thank you. And so I I believe we're going to see that's going to be the most powerful disruptive force, especially when you see Paraguay and you see other nation states accept it as a currency for legal as a legal currency and a currency that they will also be mining and keeping it as part of their core reserve and swapping out US dollars. So they're moving away from the dollar system because they don't have a choice. So we're going to see that proliferate and that's going to change. Now, the counter to that, that's the utopian shift. The dystopian is where the Chinese central bank, the Federal Reserve come out with their Chinese yuan, which will be deployed on the date of the opening of the Winter Olympics. And later this year, most likely next year, the Federal Reserve will come out with their Fed coin. And that Fed coin will be a programmable form of money that will be connected to your social credit score and your financial credit score that will determine how you spend that money, when you spend it, where you can spend that. That will be unique based on your behavior to keep you in compliance and to move and shift your behavior. Because once they can control your money, they can control your behavior. Would that be, uh, let's talk about America for a moment. Could this plan be interrupted or delayed by the result of the midterm election? A lot of people are talking about a, uh, a red tsunami, you know, that the, the, the Republicans mm-hmm. could pick up something like 80 seats in the House, another mm-hmm. maybe four or five in the Senate. How much could change as a result of the midterm elections? Yeah, so this, this is going to be a voter revolt. This is going to be equivalent to what happened in 2016. 
it's going to, of course, the mainstream media, Don Lemon and the CNN team, they're going to play this thing down. But this wave is going to be happening, not just in the Senate, where it's going to be 54, 55 senators, Republican. We, like you said, we're going to see the House go red. We're going to see it happen at the municipal level, the governor level. We're going to happen. It's going to happen. Right. We're going to see blue districts turn red for the first time in even states such as California. So this is going to be a massive voter revolt. So, yes. Uh, will it be enough? However, that's the question. Right. Will it be enough to forward their, um, you know, this dystopian plan for a global one world global order? Now, uh I'm I'll, not I'll so get convinced. You some, pardon the interruption, William. We're going to take a, a time out. We'll come back and we'll we'll pick up on that thread. William Stickovers, WilliamStickovers.com, financial, geopolitical, astrology. Back with more in a moment. When in doubt, blame the government. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. When you look at the sky, ever wonder if someone's looking back? This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. We are back with William Stickovers. We're discussing financial and geopolitical astrology. William Stickovers.com. S-T-I-C-K-E-V-E-R-S.com. So we were talking about the midterm elections in the United States, mm-hmm. uh, red tsunami. You're saying that uh, that that could what that could forestall the inevitable or what else? What are the other possibilities? There's a high probability. Astrology has been showing us for a while that there and especially because the fact that the election will occur on a lunar eclipse. So we know historically when we have uh, elections correlate within a day or the day of or day after following an eclipse, we see a party that was dominant in power fall, right? So somebody falls and someone rises. Uh, so there's going to be massive reversals uh, in the power structure. That being said, we have a bigger issue and that has to do with the deep state. So will this be enough to slow down the policies of a deep state complex that is essentially hijacked our constitutional democracy and trying to push us into a global empire and where we start really behaving like a global empire uh, in a way that's much more overt? So uh, the United States is essentially an empire, a covert empire that projects itself as a democracy or a uh, democracy that operates within a constitutional framework. And that has certainly not been the case, uh, certainly for a good 20 some odd years. And so we're now seeing this getting pushed out. So I I would say that we're going to still look the big collision between populist or anti-globalist nationalist forces and populist force and all that populist rise is going to go against this globalist coalition. And, the, you know, so I you could separate it out between people who take the red pill and people who take the blue pill, right? The blue pill folks are like, hey, I'm all for Biden, Kamala. She can't happen soon enough. I'm all for this outsourcing. Everything's fine. I've gotten vaxxed. I'm getting my fourth booster, right? What are you guys talking about? This is craziness. Let's do a show on something more you know, sane and real, right? And then you've got everybody else listening to the show, the red pill are going, yeah, man, I totally understand what you're saying. This can't happen fast enough. Something must change. 
I'm willing to do whatever it takes now to change this, whether I have to vote, whether I have to do, you know, so we're going to see a lot more political activism, social activism. So you're going to see a bifurcation, which has already begun, but the bifurcation will grow wider, get more intense and get more confrontational in a much more overt way in 2022. There are some asking for a national divorce in the United States because of irreconcilable differences. How can a conservative Christian, for example, coexist with a uh, an atheistic cultural Marxist who hates Western civilization? What, what do you see in terms of a dissolution of the union? Look, let me go back here a second. So there is outer planetary alignments. And then we have to look at at things at another layer. And the other layer I look at is who's the dominant world power or dominant world power countries, right? So the United States, in terms of its power index, economically, technologically, militarily, stands far above even that of China. When you combine them together, right, the US is still the dominant hegemon. Now, in global mundane astrology, we look at to the astrological portents to that particular nation state or empire to determine the narrative for the remaining nation states and how they will respond to that behavior or that impact. Okay. So, I mean, it's like the rise, give you an example, the price of Bitcoin basically determines the price of all the other cryptocurrencies. It doesn't matter, right? How bullish an old an altcoin is if if Bitcoin is now you know taking a fifty percent um, uh, crash, right? So it's the same. We look at the U.S. and the big thing that's happening right now. USA is through Pluto return, which is marking the beginning of the of second act of the fourth turning, right? Fourth turning is, um, I, I believe there was a number of people on your show that have talked about the American fourth turning. We've seen it's a, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a crisis that occurs uh, somewhere between every 84, 92 years during a Uranus evolutionary period. Last time we had it was during World War II and the Great Depression. We're having it right now. It started exactly in 2008, just it was predicted right in the late 1980s by two professors. Uh, so we're seeing not only the fourth turning, but the fact that the U.S. is going to the Pluto turn. If you go back in history, the last time we saw a republic through a Pluto return and its 247-year history is when it shifted from a republic into an empire during a 20-year crisis. And that has to do with what happened to Rome. So the Roman Republic shifted into a full-blown empire and many issues, right? You had successionists, in fact, Gaul, wanted to succeed from the Republic, right, which started a civil war and required the rise of Julius Caesar, who then restored order, all right? They assassinated him. This is very classic. And then we see the rise of the first emperor of Rome, Octavian, right? Octavian Caesar Augustus. And so he basically launches an empire that becomes the world's first superpower that would last 700 to 800 years, depending on the time frame, but about 700 some plus years. All right. So that would define not only what would happen during that period, but would basically set you know, the rise of Great Britain, which was a vassal state of Rome. So you could see, and then the United States is a vassal state of the British empire that became an empire. So you could see the connection here. Uh, by the way, when Great Britain went through the Pluto return, it was during the 1940s. What was happening? 
They were in an existential crisis. The, the empire was in collapse. Nazi Germany was winning that war until the Americans and the Canadians, all right, came in, right? And so, right, and it's still then, it was a close call until 1943-44. So the point is, is that they lost, they were the world reserve currency. They lost that, right? They, the empire began breaking up, right? India broke away and all these African and Asian, they started breaking away. So you could see that the United States is in this crisis. Either it will collapse or it will transform. The question is, what will it transform into? Uh, very quickly, just a few minutes. What do you see in terms of populist uprisings in uh, Europe? The globalist Macron is facing an election. He has a number of right-wing opponents, Le Pen, and uh, another gentleman whose name escapes me is just uh, now emerging on that scene. We see massive protests that are not covered by the mainstream media in uh, objection to these uh, vaccine mandates in Vienna, in all across Italy, all across France, all across Look at uh, the Netherlands. Kazakhstan, of course. What happen- what, what's happening in Kazakhstan is not going to stay in Kazakhstan. That's going to spread everywhere. And what's driving it? Inflation, high energy prices. In fact, what's happening in Kazakhstan is impacting the price of Bitcoin because it's the second largest mining facility in the world. The US is number one. So that's, and, and it's the highest producer of uranium in the world. So what happens in Kazakhstan? That's being driven by inflation, out of control inflation, the collapse of their currency. What's happening in Turkey is going to be spreading into Europe. It's going to, it's going to be crucial to what's happening in France because we have a high-risk scenario of a far-right candidate who could win the presidency and lead the next French government. So this is not a sure thing. Now, right now, I would give Macron still a 53% chance of winning, but his prospects of winning go from 53 to 50-50 between now and the first round of the French National Assembly elections in June. I have to have you back on, William, and do the full two hours. This is absolutely uh, amazing information, so complex, and uh, I know so very little about astrology. I'd like to learn more. William, how do we get in touch with you and um, seek your guidance and your counsel? Yeah, I mean, I'm available. I'm very approachable. Uh, You could reach me out on Facebook. Uh, you can go to my website, williamstickovers.com. I also have a global transformational astrology membership where I'm doing what you're doing here, doing forecast projections every week, right? I'm doing a forecast. Um, you know, it's a, these are like high intensity, heavy duty, deep dive projections, Financially, geopolitically, we go into nation states. I give uh, many, many predictions on election outcomes. I have a high, I have an 87%, this is on record, uh, accuracy on those things. And you know, I also have a crypto astrology group because I've been doing Bitcoin since 2010, right? So I was, because I was in the tech world. So I started that last year and that group is growing and I help people with their investment strategies. Uh, and you know, so we, I have two different groups. They can check me out there. They can go to my website, williamstickevers.com and check them out, along with going to my blog where I post quite a bit of predictions as well. I hope to speak with you again in the not-too-distant future on this program. William, great to meet you. Thank you so much for this. Great to meet you. Thank you for having me. Next, the year that was in UFO disclosure with Victor Vigiani. Stay with us. When you look 
Look at the sky. Ever wonder if someone's looking back? This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Thanks for inviting me into your home, your long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' well-appointed basement with the simulated wood paneling, electric fireplace, and the painting of dogs playing poker, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Welcome to the program. And uh, just uh, by way of a warning, you may hear occasionally the sound of frozen puck hitting the boards. We have a hockey rink in the backyard and uh, my two boys, Zach and North, are out there enjoying a little two-on-two hockey with their uh, uncle David, my older brother, and uh, my nephew, Brandon, who came in for Brantford for the uh, the two-on-two tournament. I don't know if there's a nicer sound, a more evocative a sound that really speaks to what it is to be Canadian than the sound of a frozen puck hitting the end boards or maybe a sharpened hockey skate blades on uh, freshly shoveled ice. Maybe the, I don't know, the, the sound of a distant lonely loon on a cottage lake it would be right up there as well. However, it is uh, hockey season up here in the Great White North. Over the next hour, we're going to uh, discuss uh, really the year that was in UFO disclosure and Victor Vigiani a good friend of the program who makes frequent appearances here and from time to time, uh, even guest hosts, will talk about the year that was in UFO ET disclosure. And uh, Victor, welcome to the program. Once again, Richard, it's a great pleasure to be with you. It's uh, it's really been a, a wild past year in 2021. And it's just been absolutely incredible. And it, it won't be something that will ever be repeated again until something really, really big or bigger happens. And uh, it's... Uh, <laughs> I, I, I can almost uh, predict that something something really, really bizarre uh, is about to happen, but we can get into that later on. And I do congratulate your boys for playing hockey out in the back there. That's something that I love to do. We had our own rink out in the back of our, our home uh, in Toronto, so I know exactly the feeling you're talking about, the, uh, you know, the, the sharpening of the blades and the, and the, the pucks and the no, it didn't go in, or yes, it did go in. <laughs> That's all part of being Canadian. You're it right. is, indeed. I just hope they don't lose any teeth. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. Yes. So uh, before we get rolling, tell people (laughs) how they can follow you, your blog, uh, Zeland Communications. Really, uh, it's just a a simple matter of uh, Googling Zeland Communications and uh, the, 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 the URL is a pretty simple one once you get there. And once you arrive at the platform at Zeland Communications, 
publications. It's uh, a series of editorials, press releases, um, announcements, media alerts about the current state of the uh, the UFO situation or UAP situation. And recently, I've posted uh, several several articles and media releases regarding the things that have happened just recently and even the ones in the past. So uh, I invite people to go to Zealand Communications and, and uh, have a look at all the stuff there. We've had an incredible number of reads on it, uh, well over 280,000 uh, over the last, uh, I'd say, about eight months. So people are really plugging into it and finding out what's going on. And I try to distill it uh, to the best I can, Richard, uh, for people who are not necessarily aware of or totally knowledgeable about all the intricacies of of the UAP phenomenon. Uh, I could write it for people who know about it, but that would be sort of redundant. I I try to uh, uh, target or at least educate people who don't really know things about this issue, but want to know more. So that's how I frame most of the media releases and the the editorials that that I do write. So in order to understand what happened in 2021 vis-a-vis UFO ET disclosure, we have to go back to 2017, which is uh, December of 2017, and the New York Mm -hmm. Times article, which has sort of quickly uh, established itself almost as a legendary date in history, like a high watermark for right up there with perhaps, you know, Roswell and uh, the Phoenix Lights. And now people uh, go to uh, December. December 17th, I believe it was, uh, 2017 in the New York Times. So take us back and uh, tell us about yeah. that article. Yeah, that you've, you've pinpointed a very uh, crucial point in history. Um, on, on some of the, the, the interviews that I've done, Richard, I, I use a biblical reference with respect to the year 2017 and what the New York Times did with Blumenthal, uh, Leslie Kane, and uh, Helena Cooper. Uh, the year 2017 for me is a cutoff point, like in the Bible, the, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Everything that happened before 2017 essentially was um, non-evidential or really not that provocative. So I, I would call that, I do call that the, the Old Testament of, of ufology, so to speak. But then all of a sudden, 2017 hit and the the um, the New Testament uh, of ufology began to be written. And that was the key point. That article by Blumenthal, uh, Kane and Cooper really set the stage for a total and complete unraveling of uh, what the government uh, was willing to not admit necessarily. We can, it's not the right word, really, but to concede that they knew about. OK. And after a series of, of um, I guess, interventions by the U.S. Navy, all of that began to unfold. And with respect to things like the senatorial briefings that the Navy held with a number of senators and congressmen, these were all classified briefings. And the senators and congressmen or congresspeople uh, left that meeting asking huge questions about what this UAP UFO issue was all about. So that's part of how this whole New Testament began to unfold. And that article was definitely the pivotal point and how everything completely changed about the UAP issue. And after that, uh, you know, Senator uh, Rubio, who at the time, uh, Marco Rubio was chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee with his co-chair, Mark Warner, uh, they got into the uh, the National um, uh, Defense Act and inserted 
somehow they inserted language about UAP. And the, this act, this fiscal act, 2021, was essentially just a budget issue. So they, they dole out money to the intelligence community, to the, to the Air Force and to the Army, and it's all a budgetary thing. But somehow at the very, very end or towards the end, they inserted language, uh, three and a half pages about UAP and what they were going to demand that the director of national intelligence investigate with respect to the UAP issue. And this was we, unheard of. This, yeah. yeah before we get, get to that, and we'll, we'll, mm-hmm. um, we'll, we'll get there shortly, but I do want to just go back to that 2017 article because sure. there are people because of that article who have sort mm-hmm. of jumped on board and are now very keenly uh, aware and interested in, in what's happening regarding the UAP uh, phenomenon. But just to go back to what that 2017 article uh, was revealing, this existence of the ATIP investigation by the Pentagon. So just talk to to me a little bit about what ATIP is all about. Well, the ATIP program, the Advanced Aerial um, Threat Program, was a program that was instituted by a funding mechanism brought in by Senator Harry Reid, uh, in a, well, I guess it was just before 2007, probably 2004 or five. And somehow he managed to get $22 million allocated to an investigation of the UAP issue. And he sent this money to, uh, to the Pentagon and the Pentagon established this, uh, this ATIP program. And it was uh, a, a classified program. No one knew what was going on. It ran from 2007 to 2012. And Harry Reid was instrumental in getting this thing going. And as a result of the ATIP program, people like Luis Elizondo and the people in the Pentagon at the time, they operated in a classified manner in the, in the bowels of the Pentagon, what they called the C-ring down, down below uh, you know, the main floor of the Pentagon. And they investigated everything about the UAP that had never been investigated before. And they came up with a, an amazing amount of data regarding the reality of what pilots, uh, both military and commercial, were seeing in the sky, what the um, Air Force and the Navy and the Army knew about all of these things, but were keeping hidden. So this ATIP program was investigating uh, the UAP issue from a threat scenario platform. And that's an important to understand because this is the way the Pentagon operates. This is not something that's going to be done to, you know, be revelatory about the UAP issue so that everyone would find out about it. They investigated UAP on the basis of what kind of threat did this bring to uh, the national security of the United States? And that's why it really gained a lot of importance because it's a threat scenario. Now, you and I know there's more to the UAP issue than just a threat scenario. But that's the basis of the foundation upon which this ATIP program was was founded. It would have remained um, hidden, I would presume, unless mm-hmm. it hadn't been for Luis Elizondo, who was running the program, right. and which is what precipitated the 2017 article. He went he went to Leslie Kane and mm-hmm. Lena Cooper and, and Ralph Blumenthal, I guess mainly uh, initially Leslie Kane, to reveal the existence of this program. Because why? Well, what happened was the, the, uh, the, the, the Pentagon wanted to go in a certain direction with the investigation. And that investigation would, would further uh, complicate or uh, subvert or sequester the information that they were trying to, that they in fact did get. So they had a huge amount of data. And I think that's the pivotal point 
uh, of, of your question in that Luis Elizondo saw all this information uh, with all the people that he was working with and wanted to make sure that this information got to uh, the legislatures. You know, to legislating people like Marco Rubio, he wanted this stuff to be more accessible and more transparent. That's a key phrase that he uses all the time. He wants this issue to be more transparent for the American public. And he ran up against a brick wall and they would not uh, the Pentagon would not release any of this stuff to the legislating or uh, to, to the people in the legislatures so that it would be something that would be staying within the Pentagon. So as a result of that, he resigned. He said, no, I, I'm not going to go forward with this anymore. I, I, I don't want to work on this, this particular program anymore. So he resigned from it and became sort of a, a, an outlier on this kind of thing. So he, he was someone who stood up for uh, the kinds of things that people need to know about and become transparent. And the Pentagon was just not willing to do it. Now, as a result of that, uh, the Pentagon did do a lot. Uh, an individual, uh, a spokesperson for the Pentagon, Susan Goff, uh, put out some information uh, questioning Elizondo's even, uh, you know, um, participation in the whole program, whereby he was the executive director and the security, the chief security officer for the eight tip program. And she published things that, uh, you know, uh, contradicted all of that. In fact, Luis Elizondo had no part in the eight tip program at all. And that was a basic lie that the Pentagon put out. But and as a result, you, you of erase, it, yeah. erase his history, I guess, the way yeah. that's yeah. that uh, Area 51 tried to do with Bob Lazar. That's a very good. That's a very good example. It's a very good parallel. De definitely, Richard. So as a result of him coming forward, the article coming out in December of 2017, um, we I think a lot of us thought at that point things would really take off. And then there were a couple of follow-up articles, I think maybe a commentary in the New York Times, maybe a, a week or two after that. Mm -hmm. uh, there was the release um, of the, um, the, the uh, gun camera video from 2004, which has, been, has, been, has become known right. as the Tic Tac UFO incident. This was uh, a fighter group attached to the USS Nimitz. I believe that's right. off yep, the coast right. of San Diego, mm -hmm. uh, they caught on radar and on uh, on their gun video these uh, these tic tac shaped craft that were just doing incredible uh, speeds, and you hear the voices of the pilots aboard these uh, fighter craft or fighter planes, just um, you know, absolutely blown away by what these these uh, craft are doing. Mm -hmm. um, and then, so how did we get from that to the Senate Intelligence Committee you referenced earlier with Marco Rubio uh, demanding that the U.S. intelligence agency and the Defense Department start compiling this detailed public analysis of all the data that they're collecting on, on uh, UFOs or UAPs? Well, I think the floodgates open, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, um, before we went back to the article in 2017, what happened was uh, the Senate Intelligence Committee, uh, and for, for what reasons we don't know, and at the time that the, the Senate Intelligence Committee was operating, um, it, Marco Rubio, a Republican, was the chair of that committee. And this is a very, very powerful and influential committee. And at the time, Mark Warner was the co-chair. And when they developed the, um, the actual um, uh, Senate budgetary allocation for the year 2021, which gives money to all of the agencies, intelligence and military throughout the United States, uh, as I said earlier, they injected language 
demanding that the director of national intelligence, uh, Avril Haynes at the time, uh, begin an investigation about the UAP issue. And if you read the, the, the actual legislation, it's, it's quite lengthy and with all kinds of specific things that they wanted the director of national intelligence to do with respect to UAP, you know, develop, uh, you know, databases, you know, what are pilots saying, what kind of threat does it pose to the United States national security? You know, where are these things uh, flying? Uh, what, what kinds of effects that it's having on, on, on radar? All, a whole litany of things that this act uh, prescribed uh, for the director of national intelligence. Now, it's important to understand that this is not something that's a suggestion. It was a demand, a requirement director of national intelligence do this within this particular act and this act gets all formulated it gets all kind of set up it's you know 100 and some odd pages and then it goes onto the desk of the president of the united states to be signed which in fact it was so that's how it got into place that the director of national intelligence um, began this investigation. And as a result, um, the committee demanded from the director of national intelligence that they report back within, I think it was 180 days. And that's when this June 25th report by the director of national intelligence came out, which was purported to be and hoped to be a bombshell. Uh, it wasn't quite the bombshell that, um, that we expected, but it was an admission that since 2004, all of the things, the, the litany of things you just talked about earlier, you know, with the Tic Tac videos and all the other sightings that went along with that from 2004 up to the present time, uh, be characterized within this particular report from the Director of National Intelligence. And uh, they, they laid it all out and they said there was something like 144 incidents and there's only two or three that were completely unexplained. And that uh, we, but we still had questions about what these UAP were, but in that particular report, they stated that this stuff was in fact real. And then they went on to say, well, it could be, you know, foreign intelligence, uh, foreign military, uh, weather anomalies. And they really didn't allude to the fact that that might be of off-world uh, origin. So they, they, they crept a little bit closer. But they did acknowledge this- they did acknowledge and say they're not ours. Right. Well, that's the key thing. Yeah, that, that was what the pilots were saying. Uh, a lot of the pilots have gone public and on 60 Minutes, I think that same year, that two of the pilots exactly said exactly that these things are not ours. So that report, in a sense, was a bombshell. But then again, uh, it did not satisfy the, the UAP research community in saying, well, a lot happened before 2004. What about Roswell? What about the Phoenix Lights? What about uh, the Plains of St. Augustine and all of the other you know, military sightings around the world? So the report was rather myopic in its in its approach because it really didn't consider a lot of the global uh, sighting reports that had come in by droves, and that's typical of the United States uh, American you know intelligence agencies. They look at it from just their, their their pinhole view of it with respect to the United States. They didn't really consider the global aspects of, of how these you know things were coming and going uh, within all of the, the military communities throughout the globe. Are you convinced, though, I, I, the pilots, you know, say that they, they are not ours and ours, I mean, mm. U.S. defense, uh, you know, black projects, I suppose we'd call them. Mm. Um, but they wouldn't necessarily wouldn't necessarily know. Should we take not only their word on face value, but even even top officials at the Pentagon when they say they're not ours? Should we necessarily believe them? 
Well, uh, I, I wouldn't um, I wouldn't take the the word of the the intelligence community that they're the are or they are not are whatever the intelligence community and the military community within the United States of America says has to be taken with a very large bag of salt. Uh, it, it really uh, it's in their interest not to say anything about this issue with respect to it being off world uh, of off world origin. It's in their interest not to say that. And I can understand that. There are lots of reasons why um, they are not prepared to talk about it. And I can understand it. I don't I have I really have no real qualms uh, with them doing it that way. But when you look at some of the or listen to some of the testimony, both, uh, you know, tape recorded testimony with them on air, on television, on 60 Minutes, and even within their own videos, you can hear them talking about it, as, as you mentioned. Uh, there's no question that these pilots they're pretty experienced people. They've seen things that, that you know you and I have, would, couldn't even ever dream of in the sky with respect to their own uh, technology, with respect to foreign technology. They've, they've pretty much seen it all. There's not a whole lot that, that could surprise them. But when you take a look at David Fravor, one of the main pilots who did um, actually see these things, and it literally flew you know, feet uh, by his wingtips. OK, when when he went, whoa, look at that. And he was completely blown away by it. Uh, he, he stated that this thing was at 50 feet above the ocean in the Pacific Ocean. And then within less than a second, it went to eighty five thousand feet. Now, if you're a pilot who's seen it all, sees that uh, I would put that down to firsthand testimony that this stuff would convince him that this is not something of a technology that he knew of as a pilot and that ostensibly could never be anything that would be uh, originating here on the earth. That would be his impression. So I would take uh, the, the pilot's word that this stuff is not, is not uh, ours. It doesn't originate from here. So there, there's a real fine line between what the Pentagon says and what the pilots say. The, the, the pilots were the firsthand witnesses and they saw some incredible things. Victor, we'll take a time out, come back and uh, discuss UFO Disclosure 2021, the year that was. Back with more of our conversation right after these. The owners of the system are asleep. Now we can play The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Take a look around. What do you really see? This is where you can tell all about it. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. Canadian UFO ET disclosure advocate, UFO researcher, Victor Vigiani is with us from Zeland Communications. And uh, we're talking about the year in disclosure, 2021. Um, why do you suppose Senator Mark Rubio and uh, the other gentleman, Warren, uh, why they were so insistent on inserting such strong language into this um, this piece of legislation that came out of the Senate Intelligence Committee? Right. Uh, it's a great question. Uh, I think we have to go back to um, uh, Senator Mark Warner, the co-chair at the time of the Senate Intelligence Committee. He was um, just after he got out of one of the briefings uh, from the Navy intelligence people. Uh, he said, there's a lot of questions that we have. And in that, that briefing, 
And I don't know exactly how many senators or congressmen uh, were in that meeting. I know Rubio was there. Mark Warner was there. There could have been a plethora of, of other, you know, uh, Senate and, and um, House of Representatives in, in that room. I have no idea how many there were. But the fact of the matter is that was a classified briefing. And uh, from what I understand, people came out of that meeting shaking their head uh, and they were you know, obviously, uh, you know, under some sort of oath or some sort of restrictions about regarding uh, or telling about anything that they heard from the Navy at the time. And the Navy told them things that uh, these 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 legislatures um, people have never heard before. So I think that particular hearing, if this is my assessment of it, Richard, is that particular classified uh, hearing or briefing uh, awoken Rubio and Mark Warner. And as soon as they found out that this kind of information was out there, uh, they took a step. Uh, and, you know, Rubio was the chair of the committee at the time and Warner. They decided to try to find out more about this. And what better way could they do it than to inject a demand or a requirement in the, uh, in the national budget for the 19 for the 2021 fiscal year? So in order for them to transfer all of this money to all of these agencies, they also put in a requirement for the director of national intelligence to investigate UAP. What better way could they do it than in a piece of legislation rather than coming out and, you know, doing a separate piece of legislation, doing something on their own as a committee. Uh, they felt that for whatever reasons, it would be best to insert this language within a committee um, uh, piece of legislation, have it go forward to the president, have it signed by the president, which is done every year. This 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 National Intelligence Act is done every year. It's a budgetary thing that has to happen. So when the president puts his, you know, his his imprimatur on it, when he signs it, it has to go forward and it has to be, quote, quote unquote, obeyed. So what better way could they find out what this UAP situation was all about, but to demand that the director of national intelligence investigate the UAP stuff. And they knew they had as much information that they needed to actually go forward with it. So it wasn't just something, you know, tell us something that you don't know. We already know what this stuff is, but we want more data on it. We want the director of national intelligence to give us every piece of data that you had, not be selective about it but every piece of data that you had. So they had a perfect conduit. This, this act was, you know, written in stone. So that's my estimation as to how it originated from the Navy briefing. And they came out of that saying, we need to be more transparent about that. And then the rest of the, the story comes out that, uh, you know, after the election, Warner became the, the uh, Mark Warner became the chair of the committee and Rubio became the co-chair. And then things just went on from there. And we can talk about that in a few minutes too, if you want. Sure. Well, Bring us up to speed. I mean, after so that that was in June, uh, we had the June of 2021, we had the release of this preliminary assessment of unidentified mm -hmm. aerial phenomena. And as you say, that was a, a big disappointment. Uh, it only went back to 2004 in terms of UAP reports. Um, has anything further come out? I mean, we have we seen any. Um, any additional uh, video evidence, for example, from the Navy, any additional uh, pilots from or any additional uh, reports from Navy pilots that that uh, come after 2004? Everything seems to go back only as 2004. In other words, you know, mm -hmm. what have you done for me lately? What, what, what do we what do we see more recently? Well, the 
what has happened to, to, to my understanding, uh, there were three separate videos, three separate, very, very key videos that came out. And um, I interviewed uh, Luis Elizondo and I asked him, you know, the question that you asked me, are there more videos about the, this stuff? He said, he said to me, he said, yes, there are. There are many, many more. He didn't say how many. But in fact, there were more videos of this stuff uh, going on, not just um, in uh, in the Pacific Ocean uh, near Catalina Island and, and the Nimitz and all that, but definitely off the coast of Florida. So there were, in fact, other things. Now, from that information, we can we can kind of surmise that the the, the United States Navy had a whole lot of stuff in its back pocket about this the, this information, and as a result of that. Uh, several several things happened. The, the first thing that happened was uh, that, that I could put a bookmark on, which was sort of additional to all of the uh, the, the videos, was a press conference that was held by Robert Salas uh, in Washington, D.C., and that was on October 19th. And he brought forward all of the UAP information that he had, along with other um, military people, mil military uh, whistleblowers, about the nuclear um, shutdown issue. That it happened back in, in the 1960s and is and has happened many, many times since. So he brought forward this this information. And this was another kind of bombshell that came out. It, it, it really kind of pushed forward the idea that these UAP were not just flying around our ships or over the ocean uh, and also to underwater. That's something that we talk about later, too. You know, they, they go into the water and come out of the water at huge speeds. But the fact of the matter was that Bob Salas, Captain Bob Salas, who was a, um, a military person, a launch commander at uh, Malmstrom Air Force Base, who witnessed this kind of stuff, gave credence with all the people that he brought forward to the press conference to the fact that these UAP were not only flying around our ships, but they were hovering over military nuclear installations and shutting the missiles down. And this went on and on. Uh, Bob's situation was such that it 12 uh, missiles at his, at his site at Malmstrom were shut down for a period of time while this, this red orange blob hovered over the, uh, over the, over the, uh, uh, the, the, the launch site. And he brought this information all forward, giving credence to the fact that not only has the United States gone through this, but it becomes a global issue because Russia has also had this kind of thing happen to them, not with being shut down, but Russian missiles in the Ukraine at the time outside the Ukraine were turned on. They were put into a, a situation where they could have been launched uh, beyond the ability of the, of the launch commander to stop them. So all, all this information really kind of compounds the fact that not only were, you know, Navy pilots seeing this, but the fact that these UAP, for whatever reasons, are either sending a message or doing something to the uh, nuclear assets of the United States. And that is a big national security issue. So all of these things, it's like bread and butter sandwich with, you know, ham and cheese. And, and you just keep on adding all of your fillings to the sandwich. And it kept on building. And Robert Salas's press conference was one of these things that really brought it forward in, in, in a really vibrant way. These uh, incursions going back mm -hmm. to the uh, 1960s over Minot and Melmstrom uh, nuclear bases, uh, would they then also uh, be subject to analysis and investigation under this, you know, new, new wording that was infused into the Intel Authorization Act for, for 2021? In other words, I mean, we hear about those things um, in book form from people like Bob Salas, but will we get under the Intel Authorization Act, um, 
will we get acknowledgement from the Pentagon about those nuclear incursions? Yeah, that's another good question. Uh, What's happened since then with respect to legislation is um, uh, Senator uh, Kristen Kristen Gillibrand, who's a a member of the uh, Senate Intelligence Committee, put forward an amendment um, regarding uh, the initial act. So what she did, she added on information within the act uh, to delve more deeply into this. And what her act was prescribing was not only did she want to, um, you know, tack on an amendment that dealt with UAP sightings and and, uh, interactions with with pilots. She also wanted to put in uh, language which spoke about things like uh, why are these things coming out of or going into the water? Uh, transmit what they she called transmedium objects coming in and out of water at great speeds. How can any of our or do we have any technology that that represents that kind of that kind of flight? So that's an, that's one thing that she wants to add or she did add to the uh, to the uh, initial act. The second thing that she added to that was that um, she found out through whatever means maybe she was in at the briefing. I don't. No, but some of these pilots were undergoing severe um, effects, uh, electromagnetic effects of being close to these objects, you know, burns. And they've even got uh, some sort of um, indication that their brainwave activity was affected by being close to these objects. So uh, she inserted uh, part of the, the legislation, talked about investigating the physical effects on pilots. And the other, um, the other thing that she did insert was that we need to find out where these things are going to affect and influence our nuclear assets. So that will also become part of what the director of national intelligence is, is required to do. So there's a whole kind of umbrella there that looks at the nuclear incident, uh, the, the physical effect on pilots, uh, and, and also the, this transmedium uh, capability of these of these craft to go in and out of water uh, at, at huge speeds. Right, so, uh, yeah. We'll take another quick time. We'll come back and uh, continue to discuss 2021 UFO disclosure. Back with more in a moment. Don't go away. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. We're back with Victor Vigiani, Canadian UFO ET disclosure advocate, researcher of unidentified aerial phenomenon, and uh, the executive director of Zealand Communications and the Zealand News Network. Again, Victor, how do people read your blog and your news releases at Zealand? All you have to do is uh, Google the uh, Zealand Communications, uh, Zealand Communications, and uh, go to that uh, that blog to the to the website, and it's, uh, it lists all of the the press releases and editorials uh, and commentaries and even interviews that I've done with people uh, with respect to in a journalistic way. We try to illuminate the information for the general public and not just the people who are exclusively interested in UFOs. We try to educate people with respect to bringing forward information that they might not find in their, in their local newspaper. When Luis Elizondo came forward mm-hmm. um, and started doing, started doing the rounds on media and people started digging into his background and found, I believe there was some CIA connections in Central America and people started to raise red flags. Ah, this is all a disinformation campaign. Uh, where are you with all of that right now? Well, I go back to, um, first of all, how he was assigned to the position. 
and how um, the ATIP program came into being. And he was assigned to that because he was a former intelligence agent. And what better kind of uh, you know leadership could uh, could the Pentagon ask for? So uh, he was in the program for a number of years and did a lot of things to uh, to bring things to light. And in, in my discussions with him uh, during two interviews, it's quite clear that uh, he was all over this thing. And uh, you know, it, it, it's it's really interesting, Richard, because you know, as soon as you mention the CIA or any of the intelligence agencies and anyone associated with that, you know, a real blanket of of doubt, you know, is thrown over just about everything that that person does. So you have to decide, you know, why is this person? First of all, why did that person become involved in it? He didn't. I don't think, and I know for a fact, really, he didn't really know what he was getting into. What he knew about UAP before that is is subject to discussion. But someone like that who's been, uh, you know, uh, put in that position has to do their best to find out what's going on. And I think he did it with really good intentions. But then after he found out that the Pentagon was not going to become you know, transparent about this whole issue, he decided that he had to bail out. Now, why did he bail out? Uh, that, that, that to me is the, the pivotal point. He could have stayed with it and kept this stuff under wraps uh, with respect to the, what the Pentagon wanted to do. They wanted to keep this stuff sequestered. How they were going to do it, I, you know, who knows? But the fact of the matter that he did not want this stuff to remain hidden or to remain sequestered. So he quit. He just bailed out. And then he came forward with it. And he has been very, very cagey in all of his presentations to say, well, you know, I can't say this. I can't say that. And, you know, why are you, you know, people would ask him, why are you being that sort of clandestine about it? Well, he didn't really know at the time all of the stuff that he could and could not disclose, classified and declassified stuff. So he never really spoke about in, in my discussions with or even publicly that I've seen him talk about. He's never spoken about the classified information. He's always talked about the declassified stuff. And so as soon as you become a person like that who has a bit of a, a public podium, you're going to get that kind of uh, blowback. Uh, anybody who wants to discredit uh, someone for coming out. You know, Susan Goff, as I mentioned earlier, was, was a key person in that. She did everything not to just discredit what he said. Uh, she did a great job of discrediting him by saying that he was not the director of the program. He was not in, involved with the ATIP program, was a bald-faced lie. And as a result of that, he contacted uh, lawyer Danny Sheehan. And as uh, as Danny, as you and I know, Danny is, a, is someone who can dig down deep into something and to come up with, with something very brazen. So what they did, Luis Elizondo, they uh, went to the inspector general's office and met with lawyers the first time in Washington, D.C., and they sat down with these lawyers and Danny Sheehan said, listen, we want the gun, this, this person, Susan Goff, to stop telling lies about Luis Elizondo's participation in the ATIP program. And if you don't stop the lies, we're going to take serious le legal action against you. And they realized quite clearly that this was not something uh, that they could that they could defend. So the lawyers, I don't know what the result of that first meeting was. And Danny told me that there was another meeting. So in, in, in other words, they wanted to exonerate uh, Luis with respect to um, his participation in that program. So why would Luis Elizondo go to someone like Danny Sheehan and meet with the inspector general's lawyers and demand that he'd be exonerated from all of this uh, you know, rumor market that uh, Susan Goff was telling. So in, in my assessment, the reason Luis Elizondo, in my mind, has retained a 
credibility is he's gone to one of the best uh, civil rights lawyers in, in the country and demanded that his his um, that his reputation be protected. So on that basis, I respect what Luis has done. He's really opened the doors in a lot of different ways for this. And, you know, with Chris Mellon, one of his associates, a former assistant director of national defense in the United States, the two of them have really brought this stuff to light. So I don't want to doubt his, his intentions. And they, both of them, Chris Mellon and Luis Elizondo, have played a major role in bringing this stuff forward. And without their testimony and without their initiative, we would not be nearly as far as we are right now. All right. That was a short segment. We'll come back and uh, finish up our discussion on 2021, the year that was in UFO disclosure. Victor Vigiani from Zealand News Network, Zealand Communications, stays with us back with more in a moment. Different views make great conversation. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free at 1-866-740-4740. We're back with Victor Vigiani. We were talking about Luis Elizondo. Maybe he's uh, became this lightning rod, much to the delight of the military. Maybe that was their whole purpose, just to cast doubt and to use up, uh, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of the air in the room about, you know, is he legit? Is he not legit? So it was a nice distraction. But I suspect that you, uh, like many other people, continue to have severe reservations or suspicions about uh, the, the Pentagon's intentions with with disclosure and to the extent that they want to control the narrative here. So, I mean, is are they using Luis Elizondo may be entirely credible, uh, but are they is he being used and manipulated, I guess, like mm-hmm. the rest of us? <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's, it's as I said earlier, with respect to uh, in, in intelligence agencies you know, within the United States, they've always played their cards close to their vest, Richard, uh, you know, from the very beginning of this whole issue back in Roswell and all the way through the 50s and 60s and and through the uh, different administrations uh, that, have, that have come and gone, they've always played their their um, their cards very close to the vest. And it's, and it's interesting to, and very important to point out that the Pentagon, the people in the Pentagon, they're not elected officials. They're they're there uh, for a certain reason. Uh, they're there. They're lifers. They're people who you know they may you know have a position for X number of years and then um, they either retire or whatever. But they pass on all of the need to sequester, all of the need to keep this stuff secret onto people who succeed them. So that's the way they operate. That's, that's just a given. They're not like elected officials who want to shine lights on things to a certain degree. Uh, so that's the reason for the secrecy. And that's why it's been in place for so very, very long. But all of a sudden coming forward in 2017 with the with the New York Times article, they got caught with their pants down. Okay. They realized, oh my goodness, the the, the, the jig is up. You know, we, we've, we, we've been, uh, we've been de, de- cloaked uh, and people are trying to find out more and more about it and they actually know more and more about it and so what strategies could we put in place to kind of let the air out of the balloon a little bit so let's let Luis Elizondo do his thing uh, let uh, you know Chris Mellon do his thing uh, let uh, the, the To the Stars Academy do their things uh, with respect to disclosure and sort of let the air out of the balloon and let it sit where it is and all the while, not really understanding or having people understand that there's a certain legitimacy to all this information. 
So they just, they played their cards in the same way as they did before. They just didn't make any public commentary about it. They didn't do anything spectacular. They didn't hold any kind of news conferences to say, well, yes, the Two of the Stars Academy and all the people involved in all of that, the whole Putoffs and, and all the other people who have information, yes, they're all right. They didn't do that. So they kept on playing the scenario in exactly the same way, hoping that the strategic plans that they had in place, you know, pre-2017 could play into this whole scenario right now. And they say, well, okay, now we've got legislators involved. Now we've got the, you know, the director of national intelligence involved. So let's just let them play this thing out so that uh, however this information will come out, we can dampen it down by not saying anything. And that's the whole strategy of the Pentagon. They're not saying anything. Or when they do say something, it's so effusive and so untransparent that no, no one in the media is going to take it seriously. And that's why we're in a position right now, Richard, where the mainstream media is not really picking up on this. The NBCs, ABCs, uh, you know, BBC, globally, every, everywhere, they're not really picking up on this because the Pentagon is not saying anything specific. So using that uh, strategic kind of um, uh, open side, Islands, if I could use, you know, two, two kind of discrepant words, they're being silent, but they're also letting a little bit air out of the balloon, which makes it in my mind that this thing could come to a point where the only thing that's going to stop the Pentagon from doing this is the, uh, the Gildebrand Amendment eventually moving forward. And second of all, for open public hearings. That's the only way that this information is going to be slidden under the strategic plan of the Pentagon and come to light in the public realm. And open once congressional, open, you're talking about congressional hearings here. Exactly. Yes. Open congressional hearings, just like we're going through right now with, uh, uh, you know, that it's gone on in the past with Watergate and even with in the Trump era and all the investigations we're doing something similar to that. And, and, my, and do you think uh, that could happen this year in 2022? I Myself, I've had a, a conversation with Stephen Bassett about this, uh, actually two conversations, and he, he, he's a, of the opinion that this could happen as early as March of this year. And for a couple of reasons, first of all, because of the compelling evidence that is, is really, um, uh, you know, going to be literally blown out of the water, call pilots for it, call people, uh, subpoena people from the Pentagon gone uh all the the uh, the rubios of the world and the, and the mark warner bring them forward to testify they want to get this done as early as they can before any of the elections happen uh, later on in the year and also too with with the investigations that are going forward with respect to the uh, um uh the committees are investigating investigating the the the, the, the january 6th event so they want to get this stuff out into the public realm in prime time so that uh this and information can come forward. And the National Intelligence Committee is filled with very, very good um, uh, people, both, uh, you know, legislators and also military people who can come forward and, and, and push this issue forward in a way that will literally expose the silence of the, of the Pentagon. But so the, this, that, that's, why, that's why I says it. So this, uh, you mentioned Stephen Bassett, and he was, mm -hmm. I guess, one of the chief architects of the citizens uh, hearing. Right. In Washington, which was when? Was that 2014? 2013. 2013. In, so here we are yeah. now, nine years later. Would the, um, is it, do you suppose that the, an open congressional hearing on this issue in 2022, if it happens, would, would be, would mirror the, the citizens hearing that took place in 2013? In other words, the same types of witnesses would come forward. And also, would they have subpoena power? 
Well, I know that the uh, uh, whatever committee calls the hearing, that would be obviously the Senate Intelligence Committee that would call the the hearings, uh, the public hearings. Uh, they would, in fact, they do have subpoena power. Uh, now, the 2013 uh, mock hearing that Stephen Bassett held in Washington, D.C. at the National Press Club, uh, I don't know if people have actually watched that. It would really behoove people to to um, to, to go to Steve's site and, and watch the, any number of clips on how all of the, the researchers were interviewed and the pilots were interviewed. I would sense an answer to your question. It, it would be very similar to that with even more specific um, uh, it, witnesses. I'm talking about pilots who've actually seen these things, the David Fravers of the world uh, and other pilots that went through this stuff, radar operators, uh, people from the FAA. Uh, people deep inside of, of of the of the naval intelligence, and that's something that I think is really going to become important because I have, and many people have believed for a number of years, as far back as 1969, that the first director of the CIA, Roscoe Admiral Roscoe Hillencarter, who called for open public hearings back in the in the late in the late 60s, he wanted open hearings. He knew what was going on behind the scenes. So the Navy has had their hand in this issue. For, for over 70 years. So I would not be at all surprised if, if key Navy officials were not brought forward within any kind of public hearings that the Intelligence Committee would uh, would want to hold. So they'd be key people, in addition to people like, you know, Chris Mellon and, and Luis Elizondo and a number of other people. And even, uh, you know, having someone like the Director of National Intelligence come forward, Avril Haynes coming forward and be and being a witness, because what she did uh, it's important to understand that at a um, at a public event that was held in Washington D.C. Um, at, at, at the at the cathedral, November the tenth, uh, she was interviewed by uh, by the uh, the moderator, and she he actually t- he actually asked her about all of the situation about these foreign uh, originated uh, objects. Are they this? Are they that? And she said, "Well, we we're not just sure." And she actually uttered the word that these things could possibly be of extraterrestrial origin. So she's not ruling it out. So when has a director of national intelligence in the United States ever uttered the word extraterrestrial? So getting someone like that at a hearing, I think that the, uh, you know, the, the TV networks, ABC, NBC and, and CBS would, would literally you know, drool at the mouth and having somebody like that come forward and actually given sworn testimony to the fact that these things may be of off world origin. And that's where this is all going. 2022, we could be inching incrementally uh, towards the president of the United States, perhaps one day acknowledging formally the UAP reality. Uh, Victor, thank you so much. Happy New Year. And uh, we'll talk again soon. It's been a pleasure, Richard. And thanks a lot for the opportunity. Victor Vigiani, Zeland News Network, Zeland Communications. All right, that's it for me. We'll have another brand new program coming for you, uh, coming to you next week. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night.
This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.